Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be your host. Now, my normal co-host is not here with me. He did have to take a trip. He's been here every show except for one, I think. But anyway, we're going to miss Dr. Brian Nixon. But in place of Dr. Brian Nixon, we have a guest that's going to be giving us some information about his background in the cult that we're looking at this afternoon, which is the Worldwide Church of God. And we know that that's not necessarily the most precise term that can be applied, but there are many faces of this particular entity, and we're going to be addressing some of that this afternoon. So welcome in. We're going to get started because, as you know, when we're doing these types of themes, there's always a whole lot of different material to cover and never enough time to cover it. That being said, we're going to still start out with some of the same things that we normally do in the show. Just give a brief report on Calvary College, and Squawk stands for Student Questions at Calvary College. And I know more than students at Calvary College have questions. What we're going to look at is since Brian's not here to give an update on his course, I'm teaching personal evangelism. And what we've done this last class on Friday is that we looked specifically at the life of Hudson Taylor. We concluded that and saw the massive amount of overflow that came from someone who learned to be totally dedicated to God in his mission efforts. And so it was a very exciting time for the class. We also looked at, of course, the Tactics G3 manual where we're getting to the point and we're interacting. And we've gone beyond that. We've gone from engaging to interacting. And now we're in a examining, which is the part where students are really jumping off into the time where they're sharing the gospel. They're getting really excited about that as well. That's what's happening in my class this week, or has already happened, I should say. And now we're going to just jump right in to some of the interesting and rather unusual facts that we might know about Worldwide Church of God. You may not have known that the Worldwide Church of God, when it started, it started in 1934, and it started as a radio program, and it was called the Radio Church of God. Absolutely. And this is Kevin. So Kevin King is our guest, and I wanted him to be able to just break in there because I want to introduce you to him briefly. He is the one that's going to be taking us through his own experience in the Worldwide Church of God and some of the transitions that that church has gone through in his experience. And we're looking forward to each of those. And so I've told Kevin, hey, chime in. Tell me what you've got, because the whole reason you're here is because we want to hear about your background and we want to hear about that. Sounds great. As I go through these steps and these little factoids, Kevin, if you feel free to jump in. Will do. Now, one of the other things that may not have been known is that Worldwide Church of God, his the founder, when it was still the Radio Church of God, was Herbert W. Armstrong. And that this is often called Armstrongism. You may have heard it under those names and not really known where to have associated to that. He's one of those people that has initials, HWA. Exactly. <laughs> and, and what's funny about that, Kevin, is that every time I looked into the literature, is that he had relatives that were also part of the church administration with him, and they all had this TA type of thing. There was, I think, TWA, HWA, and GTA. GTA, that's right. It's and not so, Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> no, I certainly have not. It was, it was something about theft a long time before autos happened, But <laughs> if I can say that. But uh, that being said, one of the things that's actually stated about Armstrong is he published 35 books. You may not have known that. If you recall some of the things that we talk about in our other cults and solutions, there's always this massive publication effort, which is really odd because I know some churches that are orthodox that don't even come close to touching this. When we looked at some of the stuff that was happening in the 19th century, we found that the writings of some of those men, 
particularly the Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. at one point, the culmination of all of his writings eclipsed every circulable writing that was happening at the time in the continent of North America for all priests and all pastors. This wow. one guy was putting more in print than all of them put together. Charles Taste Russell. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. And L. Ron Hubbard. They say, according to the Church of Scientology, which is another one we've looked at, he wrote the equivalent of 500,000 pages yes. of material between lectures that have been transcripted and books that he actually wrote. So there's this massive production. Here's another thing where you have a gentleman who's writing 35 books, yes. which, again, this is happening in the early 20th century. This is when people were still reading. A lot of the people that listen to our show, you know, our listeners are probably like, so what? He wrote a bunch of books. Well, this is why he starts with radio, right? Because it was a huge thing. All the old retro radio stuff. And, and just to uh, add to that, those writings were required reading required mm. reading by anyone who is in the Well-Read Church of God and anybody who wanted to get into the Well-Read Church of God, you had to be up to date on the latest writings. At least uh, there was like a package of basics ones and you kind of scored more points the more you knew and there were publications <laughs> coming out all the time. And also listening to, they used to call it just the broadcast. That was the name. Mm. Uh, and you had to make sure you're up to date on that and expected to know what the teachings were, et cetera. So yeah, that was actually mm. a big deal uh, for the people in the Worldwide Church of God. So there was a constant stream of information. One of the other things that was, I'm assuming, required reading was The Plain Truth, which actually started the same year he started the radio broadcast. Yes. And that is, for those of you who may not know, that is a magazine that is still being published, as far as I know, albeit under a different iteration. Yeah, a different church now. But as this uh, offshoot of the Willard Church of God. There's this thing. It's It shows us how important constant information is and constant contact with information source that's authorized is within cultic structures. Now, that doesn't mean that every information stream that you come across is required because the Lord requires us to read the Bible, etc. But these are things that are external to Scripture that are the teachings of a particular individual or a group of individuals that are in administration of the church. We have this. So we have a radio broadcast. We have a magazine that's being published. We have a fellow who comes from a very interesting background, we're going to get more into that in the historical part, but as far as the rest of the five, there's some unfortunate facts where, you know, and these have been denied, but there seems to be a sufficient amount of evidence to prove this, and that Armstrong was accused of being incestual with his daughter. And this was published broadly. I know it was denied, and I'm not saying that as an argument ad hominem, but it plays into many of the other leaders that we've looked at that were into some type of sexual deviance that typically is associated yeah, I with think, false doctrine. Yeah, and I think I'd actually, I've actually, I think it's Debbie Armstrong. Is that who yeah. it was? I think I've actually met her. Yeah. And, and she's the one that actually made it known. Yeah, and she didn't display any behaviors as such. She, she stuck with the program for a while, but I do recall that being one of the issues, but I keep going, yeah. And, and so at, at this point, you know, again, this is what Herbert Armstrong taught, and I want to be very careful about this. It wasn't wrong because of all the things that he did. It was wrong because it contradicted the Bible, and he did the things that he did because he was not following scriptural teaching. And so those are very close differentiation. A lot of times, again, people take the cheap way out and they say, well, this guy did such, such, and such. It's like, well, that that's a bad thing, but that's not why he's wrong. That's an action that resulted from the fact that he was wrong. And that's a separate thing. And we want to be careful about that. So those are the main facts that we wanted to look at just briefly, things you may not have known. We're going to jump into the historical side of things where we're going to start talking about the background of the individual himself, the founding of the church. And I'm going to do something a little bit different because Brian's not with me and I don't really have his 
display of what he might have brought out with this, but I'm going to use two different sources that are themselves a compendium of other sources, and I'm going to use them in juxtaposition. So in other words, there's some stuff that comes directly from Armstrong and about what he says, and then there are other multiple sources that are saying, he says this, but this is what's been discovered. And these are people that are not necessarily intentionally antagonistic toward a worldwide church of God. These are people who are just trying to find information. That being said, there's a couple of things that I want to look at. One of the things when we're looking at the history here is remember that this is not a 19th century cult. This is a 20th century cult. This goes against one of the previous claims that we had heard from the L. Ron Hubbard group, which was that they were the only major religion founded in the 20th century. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know that a good way to phrase it now that we have this second stream of religion. Now, he may be saying the founder of that church, as they call it now, he may be saying that they're the only non-Christian Ah, uh, that group. could be it, yeah. But they're certainly not the only major group, and the Worldwide Church of God would definitely be considered a major cult. Yes. What it is now, that's another matter we'll get to later. The first thing that I want to look at is Herbert Armstrong's, why did he start the radio program, and what happened before that? Like, how did this guy just suddenly pop on the radar? Yeah, it's an interesting story. Absolutely. And so I'm going to throw some of this out there, and Kevin, of course, I want to hear about your input. And more importantly, I want you to, to tell us what you knew while you were part of it, and if some of the negative things that are going to come up were ever included in the narrative about the founder oh, as yeah. rumblings, as gossip. Or what, sure. like, was there an awareness of any of this stuff, or was yeah. it sort of clouded in this hagiography, the literature of saints that always happens in these foundings? Oh, yeah. Again, this is directly from a source that is friendly toward Armstrong and has done some biographical work on him. And it says the editorial office of the ministry, speaking of uh, the group there that he worked with, Armstrong, has received numerous inquiries concerning Herbert W. Armstrong, spokesman of the Radio Church of God, which broadcasts its teachings by radio and by mail from Pasadena, California. Now, that's no longer the headquarters, from what I understand. Correct. The most frequent question is this. Has Mr. Armstrong ever been connected with the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Now, this is something that Armstrong himself, and they give a couple of quotes here where he vehemently denies having anything to do with the Mormons, anything to do with the Jehovah's Witnesses, and anything to do with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But that's not entirely true. Now, it was in direct contact. And so as such, he did not. Yeah, so it's possible that as he lived his life, he uh, came into contact with uh, these people just like some of us do. Exactly. And it's possible that he was influenced by some of their methodologies and doctrines. Yeah, you're correct. He had never joined uh, either of those. And that's correct. Exactly right. And so in the 1920s, remember, this starts in 1934, but in the 1920s, he's casting about, from what I have read in several places, he was a member of the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, and there was a, lot, a strong presence for the Klan in Oregon. And so he ended up moving to Oregon. Whether that was what motivated it is not clear, but he became associated with that group there, and it was sympathetic to some of the theological positions that he took later, for which he ended up being removed from the fellowship of a church that, while it was not explicitly a Seventh-day Adventist church, was full of Seventh-day Adventist members, and it was actually a church of God. Mm. And it was a small group that had been a split-off from the Seventh-day Adventist some 90 years or so before he joined it, and they had a lot of former members that would either still be coming over from the Seventh-day Adventist group, and the church that he had you know, joined himself to at that point never seemed to have really repudiated the doctrines of Seventh-day Adventism. In name, 
No, he was not associated. But then he became defellowshipped from yes. that church when he began to teach some things. And maybe he picked it up from the Aryan groups that were within the clan. And they, you know, because the clan, be it the horrible organization that it always was, they would always try to tie what they said to the Bible, just yeah. like a lot of other horrible organizations do. Yeah. And uh, as far as the, from the inside view, um, we were aware of his history in terms of uh, having had some influence from Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, we were aware of his history as to um, uh, the, the fact that he was disfellowshipped and he decided that he was going to go on his own and start something new. Uh, but uh, in fact, this is the first time I've heard, ever heard anyone say, uh, talk about any association with the Klan, uh, even post-Warlord Church of God, yeah. after he had died and after all of his teachings had been uh, questioned. We never uh, heard any of that type of history. So very interesting. Yeah. So his, his affiliation there may have been where he had come across this doctrine of British Israelism, which is a very prejudiced view on a number of levels. Yes. And so it was because of his propagation of that doctrine within that church of God that the elders of that church said, no can do, man. We're not going to have this happen. Yes. And he was disfellowshipped. And so while that may have been said, well, you know, we didn't really like his doctrine. It's like it wasn't just about doctrine. It was about what underlay that doctrine. And it still continued to pervade. As far as I understand, there was a significant period of time, just like with Mormonism, where folks of African descent or folks who were black were not allowed to join that institution. Now, yeah. they've done a lot to try to recoup that. Yeah, but, that, that, that was uh, never the case as far as I know. Uh, in the Willow Richards of God. So just to address some of the racial issues, you, you are absolutely correct that British Israelism is uh, a core, or was, I guess, because uh, back then was a core component of the Willow Richards of God. What they thought was that uh, the United States and Britain were Ephraim and Manasseh, descendants right. directly of Israel. Uh, and in doing so, they also thought that black people had the mark of Ham. Yeah. And they, the church itself was never overtly antagonistic towards blacks. I, I can speak to that because I'm black. So I, w I was there. Uh, and I'm married to a woman whose father was in the Worldwide Church of God very early, went to the, the Worldwide Church of God's college ambassador, college in Pasadena, yeah. California, uh, and served uh, as a, a pastor and a pastor's pastor throughout the entire United States in very large cities. And so they were never antagonistic. But what the Worldwide Church of God did hmm. was they would check your lineage. So, for instance, uh, I also went to Ambassador College, which then became Ambassador University. And in the beginning, if you wanted to date somebody, you have to look like them. Hmm. So if if I wanted to date uh, somebody who was white, that, that just wasn't done. If I wanted to date somebody that was from the Indian subcontinent. No, 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 you can't do that. Um, so, and if there was somebody of mixed race or whatever, they would actually check lineages to see if those people were compatible, even at the congregational level. Mm. So for instance, let's say there are two people dating at a congregation in Waxahachie and they can't tell what race they are. Well, then they would, the pastor would go through their lineage and send that information into Pasadena and get a, a response back. And so there are a lot of people who were not allowed to get married because their races were too different. 
in terms of the culture in the church, it was, that was the only issue, which is a big one, yeah. but it was the only issue in terms of uh, race. Um, I will say that in some of the churches in the South, some of the congregations, uh, the black people were separated during services, but they didn't want to seem like segregationists, so they put the black people in front instead of in back. Wow. <laughs> so, um, and and as an insider, because I, I knew all, uh, and Joseph W. Takats, Takats Jr., uh, I went to Ambassador before, uh, after Herbert W. Armstrong had died. Mm. Uh, so all the movers and shakers, I, I knew them. And th- everybody, what, to, to almost a person, except for somebody like Roderick Meredith, which you've probably read about, <laughs> uh, was embarrassed and apologetic about the church's racial policies. Right. So, um, and, and I didn't actually get to know that until I was already in my very late teens. Very interesting. And again, you know, we, we had a, a guest on for our LDS broadcast, and there were just some things, there was some knowledge of the fact that there were some negative policies, but most of the time the church members, probably because of the tight control of information, they were never exposed. And this happens in the Protestant church too. I mean, who knew that certain Protestant leaders were guilty of murder? Oh yeah, right. Until after long after high school, <laughs> if you ever pick up a book and read it. So oh, yeah. there's this dynamic, and so this is again one of the one of the pain points of the history of where he has come from. That, as Kevin has pointed out, in what is known now as the restored Church of God, and then. Yeah, there the are actually several is major a hard term. Yeah, so let me just give you a little bit yeah. of, of uh, what happened in the shortest possible way. One of the problems with the Worldwide Church of God, and I put the word problems in quotes, <laughs> is that <laughs> they really liked the Bible and they really mm-hmm. relied on the Bible. So they struggled with doctrine all of the time. After Herbert W. Armstrong died, there was more freedom to explore doctrine. On top of that, they were building a university and a lot of their top people were going out and getting PhDs from conservative Christian colleges. And so they were starting to understand the larger world of doctrine. So eventually what happened is Joseph W. Takach started titrating. It's a chemistry term that I like to use. It's dripping one bit at a time, titrating doctrine, and this is orthodox doctrine, into the church, which... um, eventually culminated in the World Art Church of God going orthodox so that their doctrines would almost be, you know, uh, the same as any uh, orthodox church. But what happened when the Philadelphia Church of God and the Restored Church of God and the Living Church of God and the United Church of God, WIA, and all (laughs) those split off, uh, the Worldwide Church of God still had huge baggage. If you can imagine the Mormons going Orthodox. I know that's hard, right? But what if it happened? And But everybody still called them the Mormons. It, that baggage goes with you. So they finally decided that they had to get rid of that name and they finally shed the name. And so there is no more Warrior Church of God. And the church that came out of it is as Orthodox as Calvary. Great, great <laughs> summation of that. I was looking for that reference based on where you're your experience was, this is stating that prior to the 1960s, yeah. no African-Americans were allowed in the group ah, okay. early on. Yeah. But as time evolved, a few were allowed in as pressure mounted regarding civil rights. However, on the whole, it was predominantly an Aryan organization 
stressing Anglo-Israelism. So this would have been prior to the time, and thankfully, at least that part was somewhat moderated. But honestly, when it comes to cults, it's difficult to determine which doctrine is worse. But the ones that truly impact people and their communities, you know, those are, for for that to ever have been said that that came from the Bible, just so that everyone who's listening is clear, that kind of nonsense does not come from the Bible. Not at all. That comes from people's personal prejudices. Yes. And and uh, another thing, too, that happened to me, and I think I would find a lot of people who would say this, there was a different experience depending on who you were. What mm. the Weller Church of God did is their pastors were rotated through the church roughly every 70 years, seven years, not 70 years. I, I, like, wow. I don't know any pastors. That, <laughs> yeah, that per, perhaps I misspoke. Um, <laughs> <No> so, <way. laughs> so every seven years. And um, what they didn't want is one pastor controlling uh, one congregation for a long time. So therefore, we had different experiences. And in the time that I came into the Royal Church of God on my own, um, we had a pastor. I never heard a word preached in the entire time I was there, nor had I read in any of the published documents uh, anything about uh, racial uh, segregation, racial. Mm. Uh, we, we had dances, and we, you couldn't do this in other churches, but and everybody who was here in New Mexico, they're all shades of brown. Everybody danced with each other. And, uh, and then I, at around the age of 19, I went to one of my last youth events, which was to go run. Uh, track in Colorado. And before the track meet, there was a dance. And one of the things I used to really detest as a young man is people who would not participate. Uh, all these girls standing around want to dance and the guy's just not doing anything. So I said, you know, I'm going to start this right now. I went to a girl I've been talking with and I said, hey, you want to dance with me? And she said, uh, <laughs> uh, and she looked at me, are you, you kidding? You're joking, right? And I said, no. Uh, I'm, I'm just asking you to dance. And she said, well, uh, let me get my uh, elder, the pastor. <laughs> oh, man. And then they all surrounded me. And that's when I learned of that doctrine. So mm. it was not preached in my local church. That is really interesting. Yes. So there were sort of like islands. And you to have a certain that, extent. Yeah. You have that with some independent churches. But for a more monolithic church, at least it seems like there's the monolithic view. Yeah. Now, this is something we do talk about in apologetics. I say when you approach somebody with a full knowledge of what the doctrines that that church is supposed to teach and believe are, one of the things you need to be aware of is that just like you probably don't know everything about Christianity, a lot of these folks do not know and may not even care about all of the tenets of what's considered to be orthodox within their own practice. Yeah. And so you have to take Very a different true. tack. So what you're saying is is right on point. It's like my experience in this is that we had a completely different culture, but then I went somewhere else and all of a sudden it's just, it's night and day. Yeah. So that's, that is excellent information. Now, getting back to the history here, because we're going to go through the doctrine, the, some of the major doctrines. And again, I know it's probably difficult f- for you as listeners to juxtaposition. So bear with us on this because we're sort of jumping because he's given us a summation of what's happening at what's already happened at the end. But right now we're sort of plowing through what was and what may still be in some iterations of this organization that would make it a cult. So we're, we're, we're collectively aware that there is much of what used to be that now is not, and we're not condemning that part of it to the best of our knowledge. We're talking about what was and that there's still many people who are within what yes, was. Yes, many splinter groups, and they're very large, some of them. Yes. 
And and so in this instance, uh, like the United Church of God, particularly, yeah. you know, has thousands upon thousands of members. Yep. And the history behind this, you know, coming up to this is that the original Worldwide Church of God, because we're still sort of stuck 20, 30 years after Herbert W. Armstrong founds this. And then yeah. some years after the radio broadcast begins, it begins to be designated the Worldwide Church of God, presumably because of the reach of the radio and the publications. And aspirations. Yes. That's a huge part of it. Yes. And so as as this doctrine starts to go out, there's this inevitable corruption that begins to happen, and it's impossible to keep it covered. Now, to be fair, outside of the initial scandal that we've already attributed to Herbert W. Armstrong, there were seemingly a bunch of financial issues where there was the abuse of the finances that were coming in. There was certain lifestyle issues that were being lived by some of the other folks that were in administration of the church. Now, how much of that is still attributable to Herbert is one thing. I mean, not that he needs any more strikes on that one, but when it comes to the lifestyles of those with whom he surrounded himself, some of which were his family, um, there were some major problems with them going overseas, engaging in adulterous and fornication and other things like that living very opulent lifestyles, you know, things that as listeners, I know that you're familiar with when it comes to a lot of different churches. That's where the finger gets pointed, right? It's like, why does that pastor have a Rolls Royce? And why does that pastor and his wife, you know, why is she driving a Lamborghini? Why is, you know, and there's there's all these things. It's like the, the abuse of money shows itself pretty clearly, pretty quickly. And what that does, everybody says, well, it's not wrong for a pastor to be rich. It's an indication that there is some problem with temperance in that person and that they think that the money is best spent on luxurious things rather than forwarding the work of the kingdom. And it, it indicates a spiritual issue. It doesn't mean it's wrong to have nice things. It's wrong to be exploitative in the usage of church finances. I think that almost yeah. goes without saying. And it gives the world so much bad information and bad ammunition against a lot of people who aren't doing that, who are living more responsibly. Yeah, if you were to visit the campus of the Ambassador College and the World Church of God in Pasadena, uh, the first time I went there, um, it was back in the smoggy days of L.A. when there was a <laughs> haze there, but the haze lent this uh, aura of unbelievableness. So you, mm. you're, you're walking down Colorado Boulevard in uh or an orange in, in Pasadena, California, and rising through the mist is this uh, these white columns of a very a tall building. It's a it's a obviously two stories in height, but it's a single story, and around it is a pool of water and these egrets uh, sculpture and water mm -hmm. playing against them. And then as your eyes cast towards the campus, that goes up a hill, but the hill it's not grass; it's too green, too dark, too beautiful to be grass. And as you get close to it, you find out it looks like little clover leaves. It's dichondra. It's mm. not grass. And then on top of that hill are mansions. There's a, a mansion um, to off to the one side and they, they dot the campus going from uh, north to south and cobblestone walkways, duck ponds, uh, an Italian garden. And when I first went to Ambassador College, I found myself on that campus mm. and um, I was uh, holding a, a plastic flute of uh, bubbly. <laughs> it, it was not alcoholic, but and, and they were not a, they, they were not a non-alcoholic church by any means. But, you know, I was a, uh, I was actually I had just turned 21, but most people there were 18. And 
uh, everyone's dressed in their finest. And why would a church support that? And, he, and here's the reason. Because Herbert Derby Armstrong preached uh, a doctrine, which I'm, I'm going to call it a doctrine, even though I don't know anywhere we got that biblically, but of excellence. That everything you do should be excellent. When you work in your job, you should be excellent. When you uh, make money, you should be excellent. When you, uh, whatever you do. And this symbol of the Worldwide Church of God also needs to be excellent. And so you, you'll find students who are doing their work study and uh, picking through every teeny, teeny weed in that dichondra, uh, carrying all the trees. It was uh, an astounding a campus, and they uh, kept uh, those things very well. And, I mean, the students, once you get on that campus, you're living in those uh, mansions, their dorms now. And, uh, hmm. and, and so it was, a, it was a singular experience from that vantage point. So just like people who uh, like Elon Musk, like they, <laughs> they'll take a pilgrimage <laughs> out to watch uh, rocket launches or people who... Uh, really care about the history of something of uh, people in the world are church of God really wanted to get to that campus at some point and get a tour, walk around, meet the mm. people. And so it was definitely a lot of money and it was a sinkhole. And as we got deeper into the history, um, now I'm taking you too late, I'm sorry, but uh, the later in the history, uh, the finances were laid bare. So they no longer hid them. And so the church could see where everything was going. And uh, that, was a, again the beginning of a, another era. No, I, I think that's a great point out that there's, and we talked about this with Scientology. There's nothing wrong with what you do being excellent, right? And you're supposed to do everything to the glory of God. But there is an element of visual. There's a visual element that seems to overwhelm in a lot yeah. of these places yeah. because of the opulence of oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Right. And it, I'll just say this, and, and this is coming from a different area of study that's study of mine personally, and that is in the medieval period, imperial power, that meant the power that was basically the governing power, yeah. it enticed people into its orbit yes. by its opulence, yes. and they were willing to surrender personal autonomy for association with the power. Yes. And I'm telling you, when, when you find religious centers, the manner by which they attract is the manner by which they keep and it is also yes. indicative of their spiritual perspective. And in, in my opinion, that's because we are tribal. We, yeah. we affiliate, just like we saw hundreds of millions of people uh, <laughs> um, watching a Super Bowl game and rooting and literally fighting in the streets and literally uh, spending uh, money on that, right? Because they identify with that team. They've never even been to the city where that team came from. They've never played football. They uh, they don't know any of those people personally, but they yeah. identify. And we have the same thing here. The, the people you know, talk about opulence, uh, Creflo Dollar, right? He oh. he says, I need my jet. Now, he's and supposed he, to have yeah. repented oh, recently yeah. too, oh, but I, I don't know. know. But during that time, how did he get that? His congregation and followers gave it to him. Yeah. So it wasn't like they felt personally injured Mm -hmm. They felt uh, like they were supporting something that that God was working in. And so uh, you're absolutely right, in my opinion, and that that it draws people in. Absolutely. And and so in that instance where, you know, we're at this we're at this point where Harold has been 
he's been successful enough yeah, Herbert, yeah. to bring a lot. Um, excuse me. There's a Harold Armstrong and there's a Herbert Armstrong. Different people entirely. I'm not it, lumping Harold it, in on it, us. It actually made, it was funny to me because the <laughs> local pastor of that church oh, no. in Albuquerque is Harold. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah like yeah not him no <laughs> sorry no, harold that. harold armstrong is a whole nother deal that's oh, a yeah. radio personality oh, yeah. or was i think he's passed away within the last 10 years mm-hmm. or so but uh herbert very successful he's been able to gather around him a number of people that had powerful connections and those connections themselves were enhanced through the finances that were coming through the church and were mm-hmm. actually used to sort of play the shell game with a lot of the money that was going on through the 50s 60s and even up into the 70s when there started to be a proliferation of lawsuits, because one of the elements that we hadn't really touched on yet is that very similarly, though not for the same reason, to the Dianetics that are put forth by L. Ron Hubbard and by some of the stuff we covered in Christian Science, there was an intentional prohibition against medical treatments. Yes, that is true. And this could be something that lays along the lines of just the control of the individual within the congregation and the walk by faith where, you know, if you didn't have this happen to you, you didn't have enough faith. And and this this was the juxtaposition that was constantly put, and I know I'm using that word a lot, I like that word, but Good word. The, the congregation was constantly <laughs> put in this place where if they did not toe the line, their salvation was at risk. We talked about this with the Jehovah's Witnesses, where if they don't evangelize from door to door, they're not going to make it. And there were many things, and with a fear-based collective that that is brought about by these cultic religions, is one of the defining points of them. You have people that are willing to, I'm just going to use the idiom, sell their souls effectively yeah. at the under the auspices of what they're going to achieve that's being promised to them by their spiritual leaders. A person can only take that kind of just virulent fear for so long, and it turns into hatred sometimes. It turns into suicide. It turns into all these things. It's very spiritually abusive. And this is why around the 70s, we begin to see a lot of this begin to crumble. There's a transition in leadership. Harold, or excuse me, Herbert is still alive. He lives until he's 94, up until much later. But at this point, the empire is getting exposed. The, The other leadership is starting to sort of fall out of the orbit. They're leaving. They're writing public letters of resignation. And his son there. Yes. And there, his son died Garner, in a car accident well, the, under, or the effects well, of it. Well, the, the one who didn't Garner Ted Armstrong oh, okay. started, yeah. started a, a major offshoot during that time too, of bringing people agreed. With yeah. And, and it was because of some disagreement from what I understand with the core doctrines yeah. of Sabbath keeping and, and also what was it? Um, Pentecost. Yeah. There was, like a, there was a I Pentecost controversy that the, the church was teaching was supposed to be on Monday. And ah, then they said, oh, no, 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 it's on Sunday. And so there was a huge split. Yeah. Some of the stronger teachers that had been with them from before it was actually the Worldwide Church of God said, I've been with you the whole time, but you know, yeah. no hard feelings, but we're done. This is clearly a biblical issue. And, um, and interestingly enough, though, uh, all of those splits were splits into similar cults. Right, right, not not splits into orthodoxy, which is very interesting, and and it's really interesting too that you should bring up the idea of uh, those types of beliefs and the fear that they engender. Because my my actual background is that my mom started in the Worldwide Church of God around the time I was born, but by the time I became eight years old, my dad had become a Jehovah's Witness. Mm. And so from the age of 
8 to 18, I was forced to uh, go to attend and be a part of Jehovah's Witness stuff. And I'm surprised you even made yeah. it out of any of that. <laughs> yes. And, and I, <laughs> I, I, through, a, I mean, God was working with me early in my life and uh, through amazing miracles, I was able to transition out of Jehovah's Witnesses. I had to leave town though, because wow. uh, it's not something that you can do in, in where people know you. And and then I, that's when I went into a more reasonable church, which was the Worldwide Church of God. And so, uh, very interesting. And that that's that wasn't too bad because eventually the Worldwide Church of God did the same thing. They transitioned out of being a cult into being an actual Christ-following church. So it's such a great point, though, because I know people personally who have moved from one cult to another to another. Yes. And sometimes they've gone deeper and sometimes they've yeah. become more shallow and pulled out of it. I have people in my connect group mm -hmm. that were part of cultic and they they were studying the scriptures themselves. Yeah. And all of a sudden they start coming to the realization. And then they came across a place like Calvary where yeah. they're like, this person is really actually teaching the yes. word of God verse by verse. And it was something they were hungry for. So yes. I know we've been talking for a while, so we don't want to exhaust the listeners, but I want to pull out some things that are specific to Kevin's experience. Trust me, there is a mountain of information about the history of this church yes. and its transition. So we're not going to have time to cover that. But I want to ask a few questions of Kevin to get at a couple of really important points that are part of the themes of these podcasts, which is cults and solutions. We don't want to just lift up the cult, talk about everything yeah. the cult did that was wrong. There's plenty of that. But we want to talk about, okay, I was involved in it. How I got involved, maybe it was, as you were saying, through parental introduction. It yep. wasn't because it was necessarily, uh, I heard about this religion and I was attracted to it. It's like, dad said, we're going to church. Mom said, we're going to church. And you went to church. And then as you transitioned, that's the part that I'm curious about in particular. So tell us a little bit about your story, You know what your mindset was while you were in attendance at both of those churches, transitioning to the Worldwide Church of God, and then... What brought you out of it? Was it a, a witness? Was it a uh, dawning of understanding? Was it understood that there were contradictions? Oh, yeah. So yeah. for for me, um, like I said, I was I was at their headquarters. I was, uh, and then later on, I went to they closed down that campus, and I went to their um, their campus in te in Texas. Graduated uh, from there, uh, left uh, that, and I was uh, working keeping the Sabbath, keeping the feast days, uh, reading the latest worldwide news and the latest uh, plain truth and keeping up with everything. And um, then uh, some some things started happening. And this, this was born out, uh, I would say, of Ambassador University. When I was there in my last year, my senior year, uh, we would have debates about doctrine, hmm. deep debates about doctrine, and this, then the class, the senior level class that we had to take was called Doctrines of the Worldwide Church of God. And there was a series of books that you had to read. It was, I mean, it, it emphasized Hebrew and Greek. It was, it was not a, a walk in the park, it but, like. but, um, that after I left, I graduated from there in 1991, after I left, it got even more contentious, uh, as it was discovered that, wow, there are some doctrines that we're just doing wrong. Eventually, uh, Joseph W. Takach, who was the uh, pastor general of the World Church of God at the time, uh, started doing his own research. And correct me if I'm wrong about this, Kevin. 
um, he was largely the one who began the major transition, yes, even though he may not have. Yes. You know, there, there were opportunities there for sure, but it sounds like it started with him. Yes. Uh, him and a, and, a, and a close crew of people. And they started writing in our more back then, our, our doctrinal magazine, uh, which was called the Worldwide News and uh, publishing literally multi-page, uh, several thousand word articles about these doctrines and all the time i was in the world Church of god i periodically just there were things that were not congruous they did not make sense they did not they weren't logical and there was small support in the bible for it if any so let me ask you this about that specific experience one of the other gentlemen we had on here he said he goes i was coming across all these inconsistencies mm -hmm. he goes and i was told that even though I'm hitting, he said it was like driving a car on a road full of potholes. He said, and every time I hit a pothole, I, I tried to fill it in with faith. Mm -hmm. He said, and I get to the next pothole and I filled in with faith. He goes, and eventually I got to the point where I still had a lot more potholes and not enough faith. Oh, yeah. Is that something that you were sort of running yeah, into I, or was it like that for you? Not quite. One of the things that the Worldwide Church of God, at least in my experience with it, and, and I will say this, by the way is my experience with the Worldwide Church of God is extremely benign compared to others. There, there are mm. people that go to Calvary that I went to school with at Ambassador, uh, mm. and there are people, uh, parents of and family of people that, uh, or, or people that I went to the local Worldwide Church of God congregation here at Calvary, and each of them has a different experience, and a lot of them were injured by the Worldwide Church of God. But whenever I asked a question, it was either like, I don't know, that's a good question, or, but it was never met with opposition. So I just kind of left them floating. Mm. And then once these published documents came out, uh, essentially taking the orthodox doctrines of Christianity and, and point by point talking about how they are true, you know how they have the meme mind blown. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> that is it. Wow, that's great. And at the same time, there were other people whose entire body blew up. They were so angry with the church talking about that. Uh, and then another three months later, they would come out with another multi-page, small letter, literally college-level treatise hmm. on uh, on another doctrine. And and then pretty soon the church started erupting. There were those who, like me, were like, "Oh yeah, wow, this finally makes sense. I finally understand." how this all works together. And so there were some of us who were really excited. My wife was excited. I was excited. This was, this was great. Uh, but I would say um, maybe even the majority, a small majority of the people in the Royal Church of God were absolutely offended. And, and the reason why is because we had, we being the Royal Church of God over decades and decades and decades had said that, hey, if you keep Sunday and not the Sabbath, that's a satanic thing. That's the mark of the beast. That's the right? mark of the beast, you know? Yeah. And so uh, if you and you list the actual normal Christian doctrines, uh, it is mark of the beast, it's a satanic thing or whatever. And here we are getting in our mail, you open up, it's thicker for some reason. This thing I got in the mail is thicker for some reason. And why? <laughs> well, because there are four pages of doctrine in it. And and those are some of the things that I just, just uh, slurped up. So pretty soon... The Albuquerque congregation dried up as people split off into the Philadelphia and to others. And pretty soon the headquarters dried up as people split off into all the other uh, splinter groups. But uh, 
Joseph W. Tkach, he died, and then his son, Joseph W. Tkach Jr., who was another one of the architects of the transformation of the Weller Church of God. I, I think uh, Joseph W. Tkach Sr. would agree with me. He was, he's way more brilliant than his dad, <laughs> and, it, and I knew him too. I knew them all, and, uh, and uh, he continued that process, and it was through him that they realized, look, we, we, are, we are something different now, and we need to change everything everything. And so, uh, also they weren't getting any money. I, I don't know if you know this, but the Wellwright Church of God was a three tithe church. So, uh, tithe number one, uh, went to the church. Tithe number two, you saved so you can go have fun at the Feast of Tabernacles or something like that. Tithe number three only came once every seven years and you saved that it's also. the Jubilee. Yeah, Jubilee. You actually you know that one went to the local congregation to help with people with needs. So, um, there you, all yeah, they, that money's gone now. They were they were making hundreds of millions a year, oh, yeah, absolutely, because of that. And the tithe was a hard tithe too, though too. So it wasn't like you can opt out. And and to them, for the most part, it wasn't monitored, but it was enough that you would feel uncomfortable if you weren't doing it. So everybody absolutely did their first tithe, and some people cheated on the second tithe and third tithe, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they were having that flow of money. And now that they're splintering off here in the in the late 90s and people are splitting into groups and so on, uh, people realize, too, in the doctrine of tithing itself was uh, written about in one of those treatises on us. He's like, you have heard it said, do this. And then he, and he blows up the, the doctrine to something bigger. Uh, and he, he talks about tithing. He talks about that. And so did, uh, it's all through the New Testament, and it's really about the heart, mm-hmm. not about the wallet, because uh, you know God owns the entire universe, which uh, I haven't valued recently. So I'm not sure <laughs> what the valuation on a universe is. And w- once that was found out, and people who were just struggling to even live uh, withdrew their tithe, so the church shrank rapidly. And um, I think it's a it's about uh, thirty thousand members across the world now. So so yeah. Um, it that as the church went through that, uh, I rejoiced because I saw that what I had been reading in the Bible, all the disparate puzzle pieces were linking together into a whole picture. And I started uh, leading, I wouldn't, they didn't call it leading worship at the time I was doing song leading there. It was a hymnal and our pianist wasn't always available. So I got my guitar out and I was playing hymns uh, and I started listening for other doctrine and I found this radio station. I started listening and I realized uh, who Calvary was. And my wife and I, she started first. And then I came to the Wednesday night Bible study, which um, I'm going to be in today. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I'm going to be playing worship at, you know, I'm playing the bass over there. And, but back then uh, it was just unbelievable. The worship and the doctrine and the word of God and all uh, linked together. One of the, the issues that people who came out of that had is there was a density of information in terms of if you ever, I don't know if you've ever read any of those writings, but they're scripture after scripture, after scripture, after scripture and action. And, and then you come out of it. It's like, you just, wait a minute, you're just saying, I just need to know and love Jesus. Well, now what do I do? (laughs) I'm bored. Uh, But then I found out that there is action, beauty, miracles, just in the fact that the word of God exists the way it's put together in the, in the Hebrew, in the Greek. Uh, it's a tapestry of unbelievable 
a wonderfulness. And that's what I started discovering uh, when I started coming to Calvary and listening to some of the shows mm. that are on, on here. I, yeah. I love that testimony, Kevin, because basically there's this clear indication, and I think that this might even be, I'm going to be a little bit presumptive here. Go for it. This might even be the reason why a certain part of the church reacted a certain way and the other part didn't. And that is, we know that regardless of what the religion is within the Christian bubble, whatever that may happen to be, that there is often enough truth for somebody to actually come to faith and be a Christian, yes. albeit be under significant amount, significant amount of deception. Yes, I agree. But when they're exposed to the power of the Word of God, interpreted appropriately, there is a completely different. Both responses are visceral. Yes. But one goes in one direction, and one goes in another. Yes. And. And it sounds like the story of you and your wife is, I want to hear more of the Word of God, and this is resonating with me in a way that nothing I was ever taught did. There's not holes in it that I can poke. There's not contradictions. I'm not feeling uncomfortable. And there's this path of truth that just blossoms as the Word of God starts pouring in in the right form, and it leads you to a place like where we're at now at Calvary Church, yeah. where there's the clear exegetical expositional preaching of the Word of God yes. on a regular basis, and it's a textual community, not in the sense that you're getting a magazine every other week yeah. at your house that's packed yeah. full of verses on its own particular interpretation. It's like, oh, you mean I can pick up my Bible and I can see exactly what our senior pastor has been saying for myself. I don't need like a spin on it. I don't need to crank my head <laughs> into a certain angle to really pull this up. It's right there, and that appeals to you, and it brings you out of... Yeah, and, a lot of captivity, and we don't, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot more time. We've got just a couple of minutes. We're, okay, so one thing over, I want to say then in this last... I definitely want to hear you. Is that um, when you talk to somebody who's in a cult, uh, consider that they love it, right? So hmm. there were, there, even while I was there, there were sports programs, there were, anywhere I travel in the world, I just find a worldwide church of God, and I was family no matter where I went, uh, no matter what state, no matter what country. Um, if you're talking to a Mormon, if you're talking to, uh, to a certain extent, Jehovah's Witnesses, there's that community. Yeah. So it's extremely important to two things. Number one, to understand their doctrine, but even more important to that, to understand uh, the doctrine of the Bible. The number one way that people are siphoned into these cults is Christians who don't know their Bible. So if you know what they teach and what the Bible teaches, that's another way. And the second way is to show them the love that they uh, will and can have outside of the warm blanket of their cult. It's like a warm blanket. That's, that's, so, that's such a great call out. This is the really weird thing. There's almost like a Stockholm syndrome that happens where the cult is the thing that makes you afraid. And then it's also the only means by which you're comforted. Yep. Absolutely. And being able to replace that with without the need for fear and to simply replace it with peace yeah. and to replace it with security in Christ versus if you don't do this, you're going to hell. If you don't do this, you're going to burn. And there's yeah. a complete reversal of the depiction of God in the scripture yes. and his faithfulness to his own covenants, despite the fact that the entire church is predicated on God's faithfulness to his covenants. Yes. And so there's this constant juxtaposition that just, it terrorizes the mind, it terrorizes the heart and the spirit. And 
And this is something that came out in several of the other cults that we looked at, too. There's underneath all of that, there are people who really do want to know the truth, yeah. who are there because they're passionately seeking the truth yeah. and they're being deceived. And the biggest area that I would initially approach on is find out where they're at when it comes to their confidence in their eternal security. Because this is, you know, this is the question that gets buried the deepest, right? Because it's my faithfulness. I'm not going to count this that I've been unfaithful. But honestly, at the end yeah. of the day, I know I've been unfaithful. Yeah. I know I'm a sinner. And I, I'm terrified about that. And can you give me hope? Can you show me that God accepts me and loves me without all of the works that I'm doing, oh, yeah. but simply because of my confidence in yeah. his son? And as we talk about the solution, it's like as you've come into a more biblical community, or I should say into a biblical community, um, <laughs> how did that affect, and this, this is the last question, I wish we could talk about this all day, but how did that largely ground you? Like what was, what was the ultimate effect on you when you had a chance to be in it long enough to look back and be like, oh man, this is where I was four years ago. What, where I'm at now, I never even knew. Like, what was that? What was that point where you just sort of had that drop in? That was, oh man, wow! I never knew I could feel like this. Or uh, to to me, um, that kind of happened pretty quickly, and it's really weird because by the time that happened, the church that I was in had already changed, but they were floundering and not quite able to grasp where they should be. And then I started coming to, to Calvary, and I, I think what it says about the truth, the truth, you shall know the truth, mm. and the truth will make you free. Mm. And so it's a, it's a feeling of freedom, freedom to be, freedom to live, freedom to uh, be known by God, freedom to know Him, uh, freedom to study His Word on your own, freedom to uh, uh, interact with everybody because cults try to make you stay with within the group so i think the biggest word would be freedom excellent well folks thank you so much for listening as you know we go quite long on these because there's so much to say and we didn't even get to scratch the surface we could have made it far more elegant but i wanted to get a raw scoop i wanted to get something that was you know very visceral because these experiences often are these are what the kind of things that people that you're trying to bring out of these cults are going to be longing for that you don't realize it yet. So we can get mad about the fact that there's false doctrine. Of course, we want to be passionate about sound doctrine, but we want to remember to love the people who aren't on the same side of the fence, yes. who may very much want to be on our side, but they're not going to know even how to articulate that. And that's why we're witnesses. So we step into these people's lives, hopefully with the experiences that Kevin has been kind enough to share with us in his time, his personal experiences in this background, regardless of how benign it is, the the gravitas of these cults, regardless of how close you are or how far you are from the center, is something that's curable by the truth of the Word of God. Amen. And it has that effect. So we trust that you'll be able to use the information that you've learned in this show to reach friends and family, to be given hope that cults are not forever because the truth of God is more powerful than the errors of the devil, and to continue to be faithful in reaching out to friends, family, loved ones, and strangers who are in these types of situations. So once again, my guest has been Kevin King. We've been talking about the Worldwide Church of God in its various iterations, but primarily how to pull people out that are still in one of those splinter groups that are not moving toward orthodoxy. We appreciate your time listening. God bless you. And until next time, this has been Squawk.